All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Uh, On Wednesday nights with the students, we have been uh, in a series entitled Summer in the Psalms. Summer in the Psalms. We started that uh, when school got out, and we will end it when school begins again. And basically, each week is just a new psalm, and uh, we talk through it. Uh, And I did not intend for this, but really what happened was the very first week, uh, we preached through, of course, Psalm chapter 1, and that uh, psalm really set the foundation. It laid the foundation and set the direction uh, of where we would go every single week that followed. Uh, and basically, what you have in Psalm 1 is uh, the author lays down before us two paths or two ways to life. Two paths or two ways to life. And what we've tried to focus on each week is this. Uh, that our choices, our choices matter. Our choices matter, not only in our desire to be faithful to the Lord, but also in the pursuit of what Psalm chapter 1 would call the blessed life. Or a better translation of that is the happy life. That there are choices that we make that can lead us to the blessed life or lead us to the happy life. And one thing we want to do is hold the truth. We want to hold the truth high. And affirm the truth of Job 14, verse 1, that says, Your life and my life will be few of days, and it will be full of troubles. It will be few of days and full of trouble. We want to say yes and amen, that is the truth. And yet, on the other side of that coin, the blessed life is possible. The blessed and abundant life that Jesus calls and commands us to pursue is possible, not in spite of our troubles, but in the midst of our troubles. And our basic conclusion has been this, in everything that we encounter in this life, every morning when we wake up, in every habit, everything we do, we are always presented with two choices or two paths or two roads before us. One is the path of wisdom. It leads to righteousness. It leads to fullness and a life of substance. A life that matters. It leads to flourishing and it leads to our own ultimate joy, which is okay to pursue. Pursue your own joy. The wise path, the path of discipleship and obedience to the way of Jesus is a path with a banner over it that says, life this way. Life this way. And then the other road. The other one is a path of foolishness. And this path is inviting And it also calls and says, life this way. True life can be found this way. But it's shallow. And it leads to an unrighteous life that is full of temporary pleasure and emptiness. And the path ends not in flourishing, but rather in destruction. The foolish path is marked by people whose life seems good and looks full on the outside. But at the end of their days, their life has added up to nothing at all. And in every moment, we are given the choice, which path will I choose? Will I choose wisdom? Will I choose the way and the teachings of Jesus? Which path will I choose? Now, but here's the hard part. The path of foolishness rarely looks like what we would expect it to. It rarely looks like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. What is found on the path of foolishness is often good things, is often good things things. The path, the foolish path of a wasted life will probably look like a life filled with good things that simply steal 
our attention. I love this quote uh, from a guy named John Mark Comer. And if you don't know who that is, man, look him up. Read all of his books. Uh, Just a super, super bright guy. Uh, And if there's anyone who is furthering discipleship in the local church right now uh, more than John Mark Comer, I don't know who it is. Uh, But he says this, and this quote has helped uh, and haunted me the last few months. He says, the mind is the portal to the soul. And what you fill your mind with will shape the course of your character. And then listen to this last line. He says, in the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. In the end, your life, the man or the woman you are, you are no more than the sum of the things that you gave your attention to, the things that you filled your day with, the things that in your free time you're thinking on. What do you dwell on? These are the things that mark the type of person that you are. You and I are no more than the sum of what we're giving our attention to. And I say all that to say this. It's right there that we find the biggest difference between the wise path and the foolish path. The wise path says give your fullest attention to God in all things. And the foolish path says give some of your attention to God. But also fill your life with lesser things and lesser gods. That the good life is found down that path. The wise path says give your whole self to God. And the foolish path says give your attention to lesser things. And one of those paths leads to life and one leads to destruction. And it's uh, that same choice that we read about in the text uh, in Mark chapter 10 today. A man comes to Jesus in search of life, eternal life. His search is good and right and pure. And Jesus presents the two options, the two paths, and ultimately says, choose wisdom, follow me. For only I have the words of eternal life. Let me show you a better way. That's why our message today is titled, A Better Way. Because this is the invitation not only for the rich young ruler, But also for all of us in this room, there are two ways to live. There are always two paths in front of you. Choose wisdom. Choose righteousness. Choose the better way. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, and we're going to go through verse 23. And if you would, grab your copy of God's Word and stand with me as we read. And if you don't have it, it will be on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. says this, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, 
he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you for your word. Make it live. Make it live in this room today. Let us fully realize that the, the teachings that we find in your word is not just good advice. God, it's not just helpful things that will lead us to a happier life. But God, it is truly the only path to life. God, show us the beauty and the glory of your son, Jesus. Knowing that whatever you may call us to forsake, if Jesus is our reward, then it is worth it. God, we love you. Open our eyes. Help us to see you rightly in this place today. How much, how much of our lives would be fixed if we only saw you rightly, saw you for who you are. Open our hearts to love you rightly. God, I pray that you would let your spirit be in this room without measure, as your word says. It's in your son's beautiful and holy, holy, holy name I pray. And everybody said, amen. All right, you can grab a seat for me. So what's happening in this story, uh, to give you a little context, is we're entering into Jesus making his way to Jerusalem and teaching his disciples all along the path what it really looks like, what it's really going to cost them to call themselves disciples or learners or followers of Jesus Christ. He had just told them that the kingdom of God is reserved for those with a childlike faith and a childlike wonder. The kingdom is for those who come to him like little children in dependence upon God and with nothing in themselves to offer. He tells them, basically, if you think you deserve or you can earn the kingdom... The kingdom of God is not for you, but those who come with nothing, the gates are wide open. The gates are wide open. Again, it's the upside-down values of the kingdom of God that are on full display in all of Jesus' teaching, and especially uh, through the Gospels and through this story today. And the disciples are confused, as they often are, and seemingly more concerned. They care more about, Lord, who? Who is the greatest among us? Who's going to sit on your right hand and your left in eternity? God, show us who is the greatest. And Jesus reiterates over and over, you're missing the point. For the first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus makes it clear it's the meek and the mild and the small, the mild and the small and the humble and the lowly and those who have nothing to bring, nothing to offer. It is for those that the kingdom of God is reserved. It is for those that the kingdom of God is reserved. And then in this story, we see that this rich young ruler, the exact opposite of the person with childlike dependence that Jesus speaks of, he approaches. He approaches Jesus and his disciples. And what Jesus does in this moment uh, is he sees the opportunity and he uses it. Man, this is a real life, lived out teaching of what I've been trying to tell you guys he says, disciples, here is exactly what I'm trying to show you. And in this text, I see three things uh, that we learn about what it means to pursue the better way, the better way to life. Number one, if you're taking notes, it is better to be sober. It is better to be sober. 
Uh, Verse 17 through 21 says this, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. You lack one thing. The way of the kingdom and the way that we are to live, if we are expected to be received into the kingdom of God, is we are to live with sobriety of self, with a sober view of who we are. Step one in your entrance to the kingdom of God is understand who you are and who you are not. What this young man does is he actually does a lot of things right. He approaches Jesus in a humble posture. Right? He's excited. He's genuine. He kneels before him. He recognizes that something is different about Jesus. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You seem to have it figured out. Can you show me the way? His search is pure and it is right. But where he messes up is found in the fact that first off, he thinks that he can do something. To earn his way into eternal life, he says, Lord, what must I do? What can I do to earn myself eternal life? And also he messes up in the fact that he believes, and you can tell by his response, he believes that he is mostly righteous and he is morally good already. He is mostly righteous and he is morally good already. Not only does he wrongly call Jesus good, and that seems kind of odd, we'll talk about that in a minute, he wrongly calls Jesus good, But he also tells Jesus that he has kept the commandments. He is essentially saying, good teacher, I am good like you. But you are one step ahead. Will you show me the way to eternal life? We have a shared spirit. But would you show me the final step of eternal life? What the rich young ruler lacks is a sober view of himself, which in turn leads to a misunderstanding of what it means to be saved. This man was using the law of God as a ladder to climb and earn his way up into eternal life. He saw eternal life as something to be gained by those who live a good life with good conduct. If I can follow these rules, I will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Because that's what the kingdom is full of. It is full of rule followers. And this is why Jesus lightly rebukes him when he calls calls him good teachers. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Young man, only God. Only God is good. Now, is Jesus good? Yes, he is God in flesh, God incarnate. But the young man doesn't know that. He doesn't see Jesus as God in flesh. He sees him as a good teacher and a good man. And like I said, he has a shared spirit with him. He says, if you are good, I must also be good. We are both teachers. You are just one step further along than me. So good teacher, what must I do to be like you? Teach me how to be good like you. But Jesus says, don't call me good. Don't call me good. What he's doing in this moment is he is attacking this man's shallow view of goodness. He's saying, your view of goodness is warped and it is weak. You don't understand the standard of good. Only one person meets the standard of good, and it is God alone. 
you don't understand the true standard of goodness. Jesus says to this man, yes, you have kept the commandments the majority of your life. You may not be known as one who sins against his neighbor. But have you kept the first and greatest commandment? You may love people well, but he says you lack one thing. So let me ask you, who is your God? Let that question be the one for all of us in this room. When Jesus says, let me ask you, who is your God? He says to this young man, it certainly isn't me. And I'll prove it. Why don't you sell everything? Give it to the poor and follow me. And it says the young man walks away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That word sorrowful means he walked away. Literally, his spirit was grieved. There was a sense in which he knew eternal life was at his grasp. But he desired his possessions and his wealth and his stuff more than he desired to choose wisely and follow Jesus. Who is your God, young man? Because it is not me. It is your stuff. And this is the only time recorded in the Gospels that someone approaches Jesus and walks away sad. This man left sad and sorrowful because Jesus had exposed him for who he was, out of love. And the text makes that clear. It says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He looked at him and he loved him. Jesus saw him and loved him. It was out of love and invitation into a better way of life that Jesus exposes this man's sin. This man may look good on the outside, but on the throne of his heart, on the throne of his heart, a lesser God is reigning and ruling. A lesser God has his affection and has his attention. So let's be clear what this text is and what it isn't. It is not Jesus telling this man in the path to eternal life that his next step to earn eternal life is through charity and through a lack of possessions. When Jesus tells him to sell everything and give to the poor, what he's saying is, young man, tear down your idols. Tear down your idols. You have a God. You worship. But that God is not me, and you are not worshiping the King of Kings. Tear down your idols. Again, he's not after community, after community service. He's after this man's heart. This man approached Jesus with the desire for eternal life, which is good and which is right. But because of a lack of a sober view of himself, he walked away sad. And those that think that they are mostly good and can somehow earn eternal life through behavior modification or through church attendance, church service, or moral conservatism, The same thing that is true of the rich young ruler will be true of us. Jesus will offer us a better way. And we will walk away sad. That's because we have to understand that the greatest barrier between us and eternal life is not the things we do, but rather it's who we are. Because what we do is merely the fruit of who we are on the inside. This is why a sober view of ourselves and our sinfulness is always step one of Jesus saving us and walking us down the path of righteousness 
that leads to life. I love this quote from a woman named uh, Karen Swallow Pryor. She says this, mischief uh, or sin or iniquity arises not from our living in the world, but from the world living in us, occupying our hearts and monopolizing our affections. The world living in us, occupying our hearts and monopolizing our affections. This man's problem was not worldly and sinful actions, but rather a worldly and a sinful nature. So what is step one to a better way to live? Step one, have a sober view of yourself. Only then can eternal life be received by faith instead of earned through religious activity. Point number two is this, it is better to be content. It is better to be content. Verse 21 and 22. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. Uh, an author uh, and a professor and a pretty outspoken atheist, uh, a guy by the name of David Wallace Foster, uh, he says this. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. He says, we all worship something. We were created to worship, and we all worship something. And even as an atheist, he has enough wisdom to see through the veneers, to see through the facade of weak earthly possessions. He says, it will eat you alive. In verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples in a teaching moment, how difficult, how hard will it be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God? And that's not for the CEOs, that's not for those other people, that's for all of us in this room. We are incredibly wealthy, every single one of us in this room. And he says how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Wealth and things and stuff can often be our greatest barrier to eternal life. Is that because wealth is bad and stuff is bad and it's sinful to make money? No, that's not true at all. And I would argue that Jesus was actually far less poor than people make him out to be. Wealth and things and stuff is not bad. But the truth of the matter is we don't have stuff, but for most of us in this room, our stuff has us. And its talons are sunk into our hearts. 
and it's reigning and it's ruling. You may not bow down to your new thing or whatever, but if we're honest, all of us in this room, you get that new iPhone, you feel like a better person. You peel that screen protector off, whatever it is, you feel better for the day. That's because our stuff has us. Our stuff has us. The line keeps moving. It's like the old cartoon of the bunny rabbit with the stick attached with the carrot hanging in front of him. You're never going to catch the carrot. The more money you get, the more things you acquire, the line will only be further and further and further away. We don't have our stuff. Our stuff has us. It has our hearts. It has our affections. It has our desires. Again, the quote from the beginning, who you are as a man or as a woman is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. No more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. Or as Jesus would say in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, what you set your gaze upon, if it is pure, if it is honorable, if it is noble, if it is just, if it is righteous, the body will be healthy. But if the eye is unhealthy, you will be full of darkness. So that means that all our stuff and our money and our wealth or the pursuit of those things, if that has our attention, First, it means that we are living foolishly by buying into the lie that that's going to make us better, that more money, more stuff makes for a happier me. It's not true. It's not true. And second, it is clear who our God is, who we worship is then made clear. Whoever or whatever has our attention, that is the God that we worship. And listen to this. An idolatrous life that is marked by the worship of things is grown in the soil of discontentment. An idolatrous life is grown in the soil of a discontented heart. If your God is not satisfying you, you will go find another. Or as Jesus would say, again in Matthew 6, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. So the solution is clear. Be content with what you have. How easy is that? But we all know that's so much easier said than done. And yet a contented life free from the love and worship of stuff, from the grip of stuff, is the life that Jesus commands his disciples to live. One of the things that I appreciate, I uh, always thought in ministry that my favorite thing to be a part of would be weddings. Uh, but honestly, one of the things that I appreciate most is funerals. And they're not very fun, obviously. That'd be weird if they were. Uh, but one of the things that funerals do is they have this unique way, like nothing else, like nothing else, of bringing a bunch of different people in a room together with different backgrounds, different thoughts, different worries, different fears, different highs, different lows. And they reorient all of us. They recenter us. What I mean by that is this. I would really like a $100,000 bass boat. 
I would love that. Uh, the problem is that if I did that, I'd have to live in it, right? Uh, and wouldn't have a house or food or anything else or gas. I would need all those gas cards. I would love a $100,000 bass boat. But something about when I go to a funeral, something about being at a funeral man stuff it just fades it just fades whether it be possessions whether it be accomplishments one day at old age Lord willing when I'm laying right here in a casket nobody cares what I owned Nobody cares what I accomplished. When they lay you down, nobody cares about your resume. This is one thing we talk about with the students. There's a difference between a resume virtue and a eulogy virtue. When your time on this earth is done, nobody cares what you owned, what you accomplished, or what your resume says. What they want to know is that you were kind. What they care about is that you were faithful, that you were generous, that you were gentle that you were strong, that you were compassionate, that you were a faithful follower of Jesus. What your kids want to say about you when you die is that all their treasure was in heaven. Nobody cares what you do or what you own when you die. They care about who you are. And what Jesus is doing in this moment with this rich young ruler He's saying, you're missing it. You're missing it. A lesser God is reigning and ruling. Your possessions are not your problem. It's your priorities. You're focusing, you're giving yourself over to the wrong thing. But a better life is offered. A better life, a life that means something and matters, is offered. Follow me. Follow me. Or as Richard Foster would say, he says it is a carefree, unconcern for possessions that marks life in the kingdom. A carefree, unconcern of possessions or promotion that marks life in the kingdom. And what Jesus makes clear with this man is that a content life free of the love of wealth is not merely a better way that will lead to a better life. But it may be for some of us the exact thing that is keeping us out of the kingdom of God. One commentator said this, The rich young ruler, the rich young ruler's reaction to Jesus' request shows clearly that Jesus had laid his finger on the spot. And for some of us, Jesus needs to lay his finger on the spot. He had laid his finger on the spot. His wealth was indeed the thing that was holding him back from the kingdom of God where he would have given it up at once gladly, as the other disciples had done. So my question is this, what would it look like in your life and in my life if we all were to reject the lie, reject the gospel of the culture that says we would be happier if we only had more things? 
that we would be happier if we only had more things. As a 25-year-old with not a dollar to my name, I can fully say, more money, more problems. Right? That has been true in my life. The line keeps moving. The line keeps moving. What if the church of Jesus Christ, called to be set apart from the world around them, would say, we're not buying it. We're not buying the lie in a culture that is set up to run on consumers. We said, we're not buying it. Again, what will keep some of us in this room out of the kingdom is not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The nail in the coffin for us will be distraction by consumption. Distraction by consumption. And if you don't believe me, listen to what three uh, of the wisest men in the Bible have to say about possessions and wealth. King Solomon, after he had, the Lord had given him, given him the full, the full breadth of everything he wanted and could dream of, full of wealth, full of land, full of women, whatever he wanted, whatever could satisfy his heart, the Lord said, chase it, chase it. And King Solomon says this, after he had secured all his wealth and all his glory, he says, Then I looked upon the works that my hands had wrought, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. And there was no profit under the sun. Or David in Psalm 39, he says, In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing Whose it will finally be. Whose it will finally be. Or Jesus, the wisest man to ever walk this earth, in Luke 12, said, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Again, there's always going to be two paths, two roads in front of you. One wise and one foolish. On one side, you have money and wealth and stuff or whatever lesser God that you serve in your own little kingdom. And on the other side, you have Jesus. And ironically, all his riches and all his glory and all his wealth. But the problem is they both promise you a blessed life. But only one, only one way, only one path can actually deliver so it's our job, every time our hearts are tempted to wander and tempted to covet, to choose the better way. Choose the better way. And the better way is this. Live a contented life. It is better to be content. And point number three, finally, is this. It is better to be devoted. It is, <coughs> excuse me, it is better to be devoted. Verse 21 through 23 says this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. In 1937, uh, a man, a pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, released his most famous uh, book called The Cost of Discipleship. And this book is basically uh, an attack, an attack on what's called cheap grace, or basically believing that Jesus can save you, 
but not alter your life in any way. That's what Dallas Willard would call a vampire Christian. Right? That you want the blood. You want the benefits of his blood. But Jesus is not touching your life. And what he would argue is that category of believer does not exist anywhere in Scripture. That Jesus will not be Savior of your life if he is not also Lord of your life. And this is what his book was about. Basically, that discipleship will cost you. That it will involve sacrifice. And no one was better uh, prepared to say that as Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Discipleship to Jesus Christ would ultimately cost him his life in a Nazi prison camp. But I love what Dallas Willard says about the cost of discipleship. He agrees with Bonhoeffer. He affirms it and says, yes, discipleship will cost you something. Will cost you something. You will have to forfeit the things that the world around you pursues and loves and finds their identity in. It will cost you something. But he argues this. He says the cost of non-discipleship is far higher. He says this in his book called The Great Omission. The Great Omission. He says the cost of non-discipleship is far greater. Even when only this life alone is considered than the price paid to walk with Jesus, constantly learning from him. Non-discipleship costs this, and then he goes into a list. It costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good. It will cost hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. And finally, it will cost you the power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly that abundance of life that Jesus said he came to bring. And then his final line is this. The correct perspective is to see following Christ not only as the necessity it is, but as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities and life on the highest plane. Life on the highest plane. In short, what he's saying is that to forfeit discipleship under the teachings and under the way and under apprenticeship to Jesus is to forfeit the good life. That the good life is offered. It may not be how you define the good life. It may not be what you think that you want in the moment. But the good life is offered. Psalm 16 says that he, the, he has laid the boundaries for me in pleasant places. That the life he offers you is one of pleasure and joy and abundance. The blessed life is offered. What Jesus will not do is lower the demands of discipleship to make a convert. But what he will do is promise that discipleship or devotion to his rules and his way is the way to a better life. Is the way to a better life. And honestly, if we could see through the lies of the enemy, there's not a single one of us in this room that would not choose his way of life. For the rich young ruler following Jesus would have cost him his wealth and his possessions. But the reward for his release of those things would have been eternal life. And to give up temporary wealth in order to gain eternal life from the king of kings is no sacrifice at all. Ron, would you play for us as we close, brother? Let me read this quote as we wind down. Uh, this is from John Piper's uh, new book called What is Saving Faith? What is Saving Faith? He says this, Saving faith always views Christ as having supreme value. 
That is how he is received. Where Christ is not received as treasure, that's a good word. Where Christ is not received as treasure, he is being used. To embrace Christ as second or third tier treasure is not saving faith. And it is tragic that many think it is. The call and the command for all of us in this room is the same call that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler. Smash your idols and follow me. Smash your idols and follow me. Something or someone has your attention. Something sitting on the throne of your heart. Something has your worship. If we desire to to live and have the blessed life of Psalm 1 in this lifetime, and if we desire to receive entrance into eternal life in the next, then our next step is clear. We lack one thing. Forsake it all and follow Jesus. Forsake it all and follow Jesus. If he is not your treasure, then he is not your king. But the good news today is that the same way that Jesus interacted with this man in the story is the same way he's interacting with all of us in this room. Life is offered. He looks at you in your questions and your wandering, and he loves you. And he says, a better way. I'm offering you a better way to life. The same invitation for the rich young ruler is the invitation for all of us in this room. Follow Jesus. Life this way. Life this way. He's offering us all a better way, a better way that leads to life and life abundant. So why don't you stand for me? Let me pray, and we will worship. We'll have pastors and counselors up at the front. Whatever work you need to do in your own heart or with the Lord today, man, we'd love to walk you through what it looks like to live along the righteous and the wise path. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. God, I thank you that in the midst of our running, in the midst of our covetousness, in the midst of our chasing lesser gods and lesser kingdoms, God, you are oh so patient. And you bestow grace upon grace upon grace. God, I pray for all of us in this room who so often bow down to the lie of the culture that I can be satisfied elsewhere. God, I pray that you would kill that in us. We would see through it as empty and weak and hollow. God, that you would show us the glory and the beauty of your son, Jesus. Lord, to whom else would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Help us to set our minds on things that are good and right and honorable and wise. Show us Jesus. God, show us Jesus. Open our eyes and our hearts to see you rightly, to love you rightly with our whole self. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. In his beautiful name I pray. Amen.